The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Carrie Wagner Peck. Uh, her new book is Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey, which is a memoir about adopting and raising a son with Down syndrome that celebrates the quirkiness of life. Uh, as many, many of you may know, it's National Foster Care Month, and uh, we celebrate those who have opened their homes and their hearts to children in need and to those who have devoted their careers to serving America's foster youth. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Carrie. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, it's actually Kari. I'm sorry. Kari. Kari, yeah. Uh, Yeah, usually, before the show, I usually ask how to pronounce it, but I didn't this time. Kari. Okay, Kari, and I'm Catherine. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and also, I understand, you're from Maine, and I just have to preface it by saying that's where I was born and brought up in Maine, so... Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's yeah, so Maine, we're talking about actually that's that's where you adopted your son. Um, yep. Let's start out with well, the title of the book, Not Always Happy, <laughs> an unusual parenting journey. Well, um Kari, what what makes your journey unusual? Obviously, it's going to be unusual in some way because your son has down syndrome. So, um there's a whole lot of stuff associated with that, but um and you adopted him when you were in your early 40s, so you were an older mom. Um, so let's, what, let's talk about that unusual parenting journey. How did it start? Okay. Well, and first, thank you so much for mentioning that it's um, National Foster Care Month, because I think that's just, um, obviously, we feel strong about it, too. Um, well, unusual, I was actually close to 50, so I was 49 um, when I became a parent um, for the first time. Um, our, I married to a man 14 years younger. Um, we decided not to do fertility treatment and instead adopt. And it was really economics that drove us to foster care. I was one of those people that had all these preconceived judgments about foster care, which you know, now I'm ashamed of, but, um, and we said we didn't want to child. Well, you know, I'm going to interrupt you there because what, oh. you know, you say that a lot of people do have these preconceived judgments about foster care, which is where you were going to adopt your son. What are some of those? Name a couple. And you, you're ashamed well, of them now, but they're still out there, I'm sure, with a lot of people. You know, I think the focus is, I mean, for, for me, it was like, I didn't want to deal with somebody else's troubled child. And I think that is a a really narrow um, a narrow view of anyone. I mean, I my background's in social work. I mean, I didn't think that when I worked with children who were in foster care. 
Um, and so I think it's this idea that you're going to be parenting somebody with baggage. And I think a lot of people have that. Um, and then you realize that we all have baggage. No matter how we got here, we all have baggage. The other it may thing come is, from different places. Right. But, you know, the classes that we took, there's 24 hours of classroom training to become a foster parent here. And 23 of those hours were basically trying to convince you not to do it, like really preparing you for the most terrifying kid. I mean, at one point, I was so glad we wanted a toddler because I thought I could survive an attack by somebody under three feet tall. You know, I was like, why are they scaring us so? And then you realize they're, you know, I, they're protecting the children in a really weird um, way that um, they want to know that people are going to hang in no matter what with these So what children. do they do? What do they say to try to discourage you? Because oh, obviously that's gosh. what they're trying, to, putting you through. They're well, sort of like the Marines, I guess. But <laughs> Yeah, they sort of put you through the Marines. I mean, I, this is sort of irreverent, but... You know, there's a lot of, and so for, but first I want to say that, you know, I don't find that to be true. I think there are some human beings that do have issues that require um, a different kind of patience and unconditional love. But um, that's, that's not just children, that's any human being. But the things they would say were, you know, really talking sort of over the top it all sounded like plot lines from Law and Order S um, UV. I mean, at one point, I came up with the Menendez theorem for my husband and I. Um, I they talk so much about violence with children, which isn't actually borne out in the research. Foster children have a, are at a much greater threat of violence by their foster parent or adoptive parent. And, like, I had this sort of, like, you know, re-educate myself and go, wait a minute, they're the vulnerable person in this scenario. They're the one who's really taking the risk. Um, yeah, so I just Googled um, foster children killing their foster parents, and it's actually, um, that is unusual. Um, so this idea that they're predisposed to violence and are somehow disruptive um, isn't actually borne out in the research. But you went through the whole process. You went through the whole training thing and whatever kinds of, I guess, horrific scenarios they presented to you. Be that as it may, you and your husband decided we're going to adopt. And But when you decided to do that, did you decide we're going to adopt a child with Down syndrome? Oh, you said you wanted a toddler. Um, or Was that a choice or how did that come about? No, we said we really couldn't handle a child with a disability. We thought as first-time parents, you know, we really, that wouldn't be fair to the child. Um, and then our caseworker called and left a message about this boy um, who turned out to be Thorin, our son. And she said, you know, he was great and he was beautiful and he needed a family and he had Down syndrome. And my husband and I, we, we had to listen to that message like seven times because we were, we were convinced she didn't say that. And both of us were filled with this overpowering sense of calm. And I can't explain it, 
and it seemed okay. You know, I mean, we had, it just, I, and it was, I mean, it's been wonderful. It's been beautiful. And, and that was before you had even met him. I mean, sometimes when I, I talk to parents who have adopted their children, they sort of, when they see them, they have this sort of overwhelming sense of, you know, love and this is for us. But you, this was just from a phone call. You decided, or you, something was there that you just felt, we can do this, we yeah. want to do this. We, that's our little boy. How old was he? He was two. So, yeah, I, you know, in that sense of calm, I write about it in the book. I mean, when we get sidetracked, when our family gets sidetracked, it's always by somebody else's ideas of what we should be doing. And when we go back to that, our center or that place that feels really calm, even if it doesn't seem to, like, it doesn't seem logical or it doesn't seem like... It's really helped us. Um, I think we kind of forget that, that, you know, we'd like to control things and we'd like to say this is how everything's going to be and this is my master plan. And, um, yeah, I've really come to believe that a lot of life comes to us. Your experience, though, you know, is, would you call it, I mean, your book is unique because there are not a lot of books about adopting a child from a foster care system, a child with Down syndrome, and there are some certain, I mean, you talk about the universality of all of the issues and problems that we all have raising kids, and then there are some things that you pointed out there that are different, because there is a stigma with uh, of, with children who have Down syndrome that is pervasive, I think, in our culture. Yeah. Uh, and you had experiences with that, so let's talk about some of those that maybe some, you know, that uh, families can relate to. You know, I think one is, you know, the title comes from the expression, I mean, you, I'm sure you're familiar with it as well, as many people are, they're always happy, that we've relegated this singular emotion to an entire group of people, um, that we understand, I think a lot of the stigma, we see people with Down syndrome in terms of their behavior, you know, um, and you know, they have anger issues, they're stubborn, they have behavioral problems. You know, if we were talking about any other group of people, whether it was people of color, the LGBT community, or, you know, Muslims or Jews, if we said things like that, at this time in our culture, we're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Yet with people with disabilities, we're still comfortable making inaccurate and blanket statements instead of talking about the individuality of the person. You know, Thorin loves theater. He loves reading. He's in dance class. Um, he likes drawing. That's, you know, there's a lot of 10-year-old boys that like doing those things. It doesn't have anything to do with him having Down syndrome. So you're pointing out, I mean, obviously that's... Similarities, oh, but we tend to look at the person, as you're saying, look at, say, looking at your son and, and looking at his, quote, what people would describe as a disability. You know, we focus on, we tend to do that, focus on what we think is someone's disability um, or what we perceive as a disability, which is not necessarily so, and we begin to treat people that way. Um, yes. 
Well, his biggest disability is society's view of him. I mean, that, with, I believe that without question. You know, Thorin's Down syndrome, it doesn't have to, inhi- doesn't have to inhibit him. It may make things, he has to work harder. Um, it might take a little bit longer for some things um, because of the neurological processing. But the, the disability is in how people perceive him. Um, you know, we homeschool, and in our homeschool world, we're out in classes. We're at dance. He's at dance classes, theater classes, music classes. He's not treated any differently in these public settings. But when we go to school, it, the mindset is very different. It's constant high-fiving and fist-bumping and that there's no other engagement with him. You know, um, I think well, what about his friends? Would, because now he's, he's t- not a toddler. Obviously, he's, what, 10 years old now. Uh-huh. So 10-year-olds, put him in the context of his 10-year-old friends and, and how they respond to him and how he responds to them. His friends are his friends. I mean, they're just, his best friend is Ella. She's a couple years older. Um, She doesn't happen to have Down syndrome, but he has several friends that do have Down syndrome. You know, I think they, they interact like other kids do. They, you know, um, he does a movie class with his friend Ella. Um, You know, there's another friend that they're in theater class together. They're, relationship I mean I don't find boys are in general at big at sitting down and talking things over they're much more physical and active I think stereotypically that's his experience um, when he's with that's other my kids. I've raised three boys so that's my experience as well yeah so yeah there's a physicality like to their relationship rather than talking and yes you're right. absolutely I, I would agree with you yeah yeah I mean he um, you know, I think the relationships he has, the friendships are good ones, and they're based on people, everyone really liking each other, and um, it's not an issue. It's nice. Now, that's the kids, but what about the parents? And maybe I'm going to backtrack a little, because I know you had an incident with the New York Times, um, who the author who writes the ethicist for the New York Times. Um, tell us about that, because that, that's uh, a good outcome, obviously, and um, it, it was all about uh, the way, I guess, the this author uh, the, um, referred to then. children, you know, with yeah. intellectual disabilities. Um, you know, he, Chuck Klosterman, is, and he's still one of my favorite authors, does a lot of social commentary, and he was assigned to be the ethicist for the New York Times when Randy Cohen left. And so this was like in 2013, and I came across all these quotes of him using the R word, you know, retarded in his writing, and not, I mean, in a very specifically targeting people with cognitive challenges. It wasn't, um, I mean, I don't like the, you know, the expression, you're so retarded. I don't like that at all. But this was even more mindfully cruel. It was, it was actually talking about people um, with cognitive challenges. And I was really shocked that he was in this role of the ethicist. So I wrote him an open letter. You know, what are the ethics of denigrating um, people based on their vulnerabilities? 
And um, I got enough people to share that letter and send it to him. And he wrote back and he apologized. He said I was right. And he donated $25,000 to a charity of my choosing. Um, which until that time, nobody had made a public stand that way and certainly hadn't made a self-imposed penalty. So, I mean, I think, I think that worked really well. And I think it was a shot in the arm for a lot of people with not just Down syndrome, but other disabilities. And also their, you know, allies. I think this you know, is a good was, example. You know, Kari, it's a good example because one of the things that just comes to mind, and I'm obviously I'm a social worker too, I mean, people do things not deliberately to be antagonistic or to, to hurt people, but they do things they're sort of unaware. Or, and we have to educate people, right, right. And, which is what you did, and, which, and he was more than willing to, to take a look at himself and understand what he had done and wanted to rectify it, obviously. And I think a lot of people are that way. I, I think they're just not aware. Um, and of course, in writing your book, it, it helps a lot of people be more aware, but awareness and education, I mean, that's key when it comes to um, well, the, the, the children and people with intellectual disabilities and cognitive disabilities. And sometimes people don't even know what words to use. Um, right. And, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't, I think it's the way we get rid of any slur, right? We are, we start understanding the pain that those words cause other people. Um, and then we do it differently. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I mean, there's still people who want to say homophobic and um, racist things. And also, you know, there's some people you're never going to get to, but I do agree with you. I think, I think most people are like, okay, I want to be different. Yeah, people on the most part have good intentions, and if they don't, then obviously we have to do something about it. I think the school system you you talk about in your book as well is it has been in it, well you're homeschooling your son for reasons because it what are the reasons for homeschooling him as opposed to having him in, in a classroom in, in a school public or private? Um, you know what we were at that time, advocating for inclusion, which means Thorin in a regular classroom setting with support. And the school we were in said they would do that, I think, primarily because legally they have to say that, but they are shortcoming. My husband and I, we didn't, you know, we didn't say, so where's the living document of what inclusion looks like? We took them at their word for it. And what it was is Thorin didn't get to participate with the rest of the class. Um, Thorin has apraxia, so he has a difficult time talking. The communication device that he was going to use was not integrated into the classroom, so he couldn't express himself. Um, I found out through volunteering that he actually sat in the back of the classroom with an aide counting, you know, to four when he could count to 50 at home and watched the other class do other activities. And that there wasn't some acknowledgement that that's a painful thing to do to another human being and that he was quite aware of what was happening. Um, you know, I think they were doing what they, they had to do legally, but they weren't doing it well. And, and part of that has to do with is the least restrictive environment, which is, you know, people with disabilities are protected by is not defined. You know, the Department of Justice doesn't say this is what an inclusive classroom looks like. So it's hard to enforce something 
that no one agrees what it looks like. And, so in other words, it could be very different in different states, different cities, just different yes. school systems. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's nothing that's uniform that you can work nothing. with. No, no. And I, I think they really didn't believe Thorin. You know, when Thorin left, and there was an aide there who was just lovely. I loved her, and she did teach Thorin. She's in the book. But, you know, I left with a little bag full of words, and within four months, Thorin was reading level one books. You know, I think the greatest thing I gave Thorin is I believed in him. I'm not a better teacher than anyone else. You know, I mean, it isn't like I'm, but I believed he could learn. And he does. And I think also, though, not only do you believe that he can learn, but he believes that you can teach him. I mean, you're his mother. So there's that whole level of of trust. Yes, yes. Yeah, he knows I'm on his side. I know yeah. him. I know what works. Yeah, and I, I think that is really, you know, we don't believe in people with disabilities in the same way that we believe in other people. Um, we don't, particularly people with Down syndrome who may have communication difficulties. You know, my son has apraxia. He knows everything I'm talking about, and he has a million thoughts in his head, but because of motor planning, um, you know, difficulty, it's it's like getting all your thoughts out through a very thin straw. And so people just assume, well, he doesn't even know what's going on because he's not talking. Well, he does know what's going on, and we make these assumptions um, based on our ignorance, and I think that's the word, ignorance, based on ignorance, that we don't yeah. understand. He under, he understands, but he can't communicate it. Those are two different things. Exactly. You know, I, and, you know, I think, Kari, I'm also thinking that somehow as a society, we have more of a tolerance for people who have physical disability disabilities than we do with those who have intellectual or cognitive disabilities. I, I'm not sure why, but um, I, I don't know if you've experienced that. I think you're right. Um, I think it's a it's a different it's a, it's a different block. Um, you know, neurodiversity. It, just even that term neurodiversity is just entering the conversation. The idea that the way we process in, information is a diversity, like all diversities, and that it's not a greater than or less than situation. It just is, and I think part of that is the advocacy, you know, and in Down syndrome in particular, is so archaic. It was, you know, based on faulty information to begin with and then not um, updated, you know, and until that continues. And you know who's doing that is people with Down syndrome. You know, like the TV show Born This Way, I think, you know, it's a reality show and people enjoy it on that level. But I think also the, um, the young people in that show are demonstrating um, what Down syndrome can look like. Um, you, yeah, you show by example. Yeah, yes. I mean, I don't even know. I, I'm trying to remember, you know, what I learned in graduate school in that. Like, I, I really think it has to go 
you know, social workers could be in a unique position to be social change agents with this by educating themselves. And I don't really know if neuro is neurodiversity discussed now. Well, I haven't heard that. No, I don't. I mean, I'm not saying it hasn't been discussed, but as far as, you know, it's not something that I hear about all the time. And I interview social workers and I'm involved with this, you know, schools of social work and stuff. But no, I don't think that's something that we hear. Um, that terminology, I, I would say no. Yeah, and I think that's how recent it is. Like, you know, we're, we talked, um, I think that needs to be pushed through so many ways, you know, through the media, through writing, through the TV, film, through education, is um, really looking at this as a diversity issue. Because I think it takes a lot of the stigma away, and then it puts the, um, the onus really goes back on people who don't have an intellectual disability. Like, I have to figure this out. I don't you know, I, I'm, I'm the one who has the stereotypes and the problems. That, that's a good way of putting it. I, um, uh, we were doing it through your book, obviously. I mean, I assume that that's one of the reasons that you wrote, told your story, your narration, which I think is really important to hear it on, you know, from the perspective of a family. Um, we only have a few minutes left, so I want to make, because sh- there's a lot to talk about, you know, in, in your book that we haven't discussed or about your book. So um, if you can purchase the book, Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey, Kari Wagner Peck, online, Amazon, bookstores yep. everywhere. Yes, yes. I mean, I, Amazon, you're definitely right. And yes, check out your, you know, what's your favorite bookseller? Go in. If they don't have them, ask them to order it. And also, you have a blog. Um, Tell us the where we can uh, your blog, the uh, website for that. Um, atypicalson.com. Um, and I also have an author page, an author website, which really has more information on the book and some of what I'm doing. And that's kariwagnerpeck.com. And so, when you do, um, do you write your blog once a week, every day? No, it once a um, month. <laughs> I know, it's so funny. It's like um, the book kind of got into all that writing part. I'm writing more regularly now, like probably a couple times a week. Um, But I think if people wanted to get a flavor for what I'm trying to do and how I do it, the blog is a great way to start, atypicalsun.com. Because I, um, you know, I only write about Down syndrome about 30 or 40% of the time. Uh, A lot of what I'm writing about is... um, is really universal. It is stuff we all deal with. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today on the show, and good luck with the book. Um, oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Carrie, I really appreciate Carrie, it. Carrie Wagner-Peck, Not Always Happy, An Unusual Parenting Journey. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is strategic advisor and best-selling author Bryce G. Hoffman. His uh, new book is Red Teaming, How Your Business Can Conquer the Competition by Challenging Everything. And uh, the introduction to this is as the Trump administration has been ushered in, companies are bracing for the corporate changes that will disrupt the way they do business. H-1B visa changes, NAFTA renegotiation, potential trade wars with China and Mexico, Brexit and more. And these changes are forcing corporations to reassess their ability to swiftly react to changing political and marketplace realities. Red teaming, which is a system developed by the United States military and intelligence agencies to cope with the uncertainties of the post-9-11 world, can help. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Bryce. Thank you for having me, Catherine. So, um, you, red teaming, um, I guess the first question is, what is red teaming and how is it going to help us corporations, uh, individuals as well? Um, what do we need to know about it and why? So red teaming, as, I, as you just mentioned, is a system that was developed by the military and intelligence agencies after 9-11. And it's basically designed to help organizations stress test their strategies make better decisions and kind of get out the the truths that are within the organi- within an organization that are kind of being held back by the hierarchy or the bureaucracy or by groupthink. It's a whole set of tools that's based on the the latest research in cognitive psychology and the human decision making process and the and it was really born out of the recognition that we made some very bad decisions going into the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and those decisions were based on our assumptions about that part of the world, about, about, you know, our strategy that in retrospect did not seem very 
very sound, but at the time seemed like they made a lot of sense. So the way that I kind of explain it, Catherine, is all of us, if we think about our lives, can probably think of at least one time where we made a decision that seemed like a great idea at the time, but then two or three days later looked pretty stupid. And in retrospect, we looked back and said, gosh, if I'd only stopped and thought about this, I wouldn't have done this. And that's what red teaming is. It's a system to make organizations stop and think before they act and to look at things critically and with a kind of contrarian eye to try to make sure that the decisions that they're making are really the best decisions. And as you said, it's something that's so needed now as, as the, for, in the business world because things have gotten so complex. But Bryce, one of the things you're saying, well, you, I'm going back to the, the very beginning of this conversation, you're talking about the truth. We need to first know the truth if we're going to make a decision. Not only do we have to st- step back and think about it, whether we're a corporation or an individual, like you say, making career plans or career choices, but how do we know when we want to think about what we want to do and make our choices, how do we, especially in the context now of this administration, how do we know what the truth is? What are we basing our assumptions or our choices on? How do we know we have the truth? That's a, that's, that's a great question. And, and you know, Catherine, that's exactly the, the question that red teaming is designed to answer. So red teaming basically is, is a whole toolkit of critical thinking tools, analytical tools, contrarian analysis tools, that, that have been developed over the past few decades by the U.S. Army, by the CIA, by other organizations. And they're all designed to kind of help you, help you analyze things to figure out what the truth really is. And, and I explain all of these tools and techniques in, in my book. And, and those, these tools can help us, you know, look at, look at a problem and, and break it down into, its, into the different parts that it's composed of and the assumptions that it's based on. Because, see, that's really, you know, when you think about it, anytime you have a plan or a strategy, whether it's as an individual or as an organization, every plan is based on a set of assumptions, both stated and unstated. And so one of the first things that Red Teaming does is break the plan down into the assumptions that it's based on and then challenge each of those assumptions to make sure they're really true. And that they're like, right, let's to stop there. True. Can we stop there? Cause la- yeah. can you put that yeah. in the context of an example? Because I think it makes it easiest for us to understand. Sure. Like, t- yeah, give us a case history where you would be using these tools and how you would, and, and examples of how you use these tools. Sure. Let me give you, let me give you one of the examples I talk about in my book in, in, in detail is, is uh, Polaroid. So most people don't remember this, but in the, in the 1990s, Polaroid was actually a leader, a market leader in dig- consumer digital photography. And Polaroid had a, had a, had a meeting of its you know, senior executive team where they looked at their digital photography business and they looked at their film business. And they got worried because their digital photography business was growing, but it was on paper eating into their, into their film business. And the amount of money they were making, the margins on their film business was so much greater than the amount of money they were making on the digital photography business that they made a decision as, an, as a corporation to kill their digital photography business, essentially, and to double down on their film business. And it was a horrible decision. They went bankrupt as a result of it. But, but let's look at that plan. That plan was based on a lot of assumptions. It was based on one very big assumption, which is that 
if if they pulled out of the of the digital photography business, they assumed that that other people wouldn't step in and fill that void, which is of course what happened. They assumed that people would keep buying their digital film. I mean, their uh, their conventional film. And a whole myriad of other assumptions about how consumers were behaving, about the, you know whether people wanted their pictures on paper or on uh, online, and you know that if you look at it, if you had challenged each of those assumptions, because these were these were not stupid people, Catherine. You know, it's not like this was a bunch of idiots who made this decision. They were smart people, but they but they were blinded by their their own biases. And one of the biggest biases that m- all of us suffer from, no matter how smart we are no matter how well-educated we are, is loss aversion. And loss aversion is our preference, is our, is our desire to protect ourselves from losing something that we perceive as valuable, is stronger than our desire to gain something else valuable. And that's exactly what happened to Polaroid. Polaroid was making about 70% margins on their film business, and they were so in love with that number. And they were so worried about losing that that they couldn't see the fact that it wasn't an either-or decision like they were making between should we should we focus on digital cameras or film. It was a question of should we focus on digital cameras or should we let our competitors do that and put us out of business, which is what really happened. Oh, that's quite an example. That's a horrific. I mean, that's that's a good example, um, and it, and that also, to, I mean, translates. That's a corporate example. Uh, translate into decisions that we make as individuals as well, too. I mean, in the same way. What did you call lossifers? Is that the term that you're using? Lossifers. Uh, we. Yeah, yeah, you know, red teaming is one of the things that it's really grounded on is the research that's been done over the past few decades in cognitive psychology and human decision-making by people like Dr. Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, Dr. Gary Klein, and others. And what these people have shown us is that, you know, we think, as, as Dr. Kahneman has said many times, we think we know how we think. We think that, that, we, that we think about things and that we, that we make a, 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 the best decision possible with the information that we have available. And that was the view of all psychologists, scientists, economists for ever since Adam Smith was this kind of, it was called the rational choice model that that we make the best choice we can with the, with the information we have. Unfortunately, it's not true. We all have a whole array of biases that we suffer from blind spots that we suffer from. They're just the way our brains are wired. You know, let me give you another example. Um, There's a bias called anchoring. And this is something that skilled negotiators have known about intuitively for a long time, which is that when you th- whoever throws out a number in a discussion about numbers, the first number thrown out, and this has been proven over and over again scientifically, will set the kind of bar for the discussion. So if you're, if you're trying to buy a house and you're in a negotiation, if you, if you name a ridiculously low price, it is scientifically provable that the price that you and the seller will ultimately agree on will be lower than if they throw out the first number and name a very ridiculously high price. That's, you know, it's not something that we're even conscious of. It's just how the brain is wired. And so these things, though, creep into our personal decisions. They creep into our business decisions. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with very complex problems, it's magnified. And most of the problems that businesses are dealing with now are very complex because, as you said in your introduction, we live in a world where it's almost impossible for organizations to plan. You know, when, when you have a situation where the president has ordered a review of every single trade agreement that the country has signed, 
How do you plan for that if you're a company that relies on parts from Mexico or that relies on recruiting engineers from India? You know, it makes it very hard to plan when you don't know how these things are going to work out. So that's what Red Team is designed to help us do. It also makes it difficult for we as individuals to, and I think this is something you talk about too, analyzing our own financial investments If, if in the in the context of, I mean, I say it's sort of, it's somewhat chaotic because we really don't know uh, when all of these, uh, you know, going through this process of, of uh, renegotiating all these trade agreements. So how does that fit into us personally? I always like to get back to the individual. Um, Absolutely. It, it, there's, there's a lot of red teaming tools that I talk about in the book that can help individuals make better investment decisions. And I give the example in the book, for instance, of an investment firm in Texas that uses red teaming to, to make their, their portfolio decisions. And the way that they use it is, is really kind of simple. One of the, one of the most powerful red teaming tools that I talk about in the book is just called devil's advocacy. And there's a whole process that the military has kind of refined around it. But, you know, simply put, devil's advocacy is just about taking, taking a, taking a statement or taking a position and argue, trying to argue that the opposite is true. So how can this make you help you make better investment decisions? Well, the firm that I talk about in the book, they, they, they explain to me that the way that most investment firms work is one of the partners will come up with an investment thesis, you know, and an idea of how much money they should invest in what companies to make X return. And they'll present it to the partners and argue why this is a good deal. This firm realized, you know, we've got a bunch of smart people who work for us. The reason we hire them is because they know how to make money. So rather than having them explain to us how they're going to make money off of these deals and waste our time doing that, let's just assume that they've figured that out or they wouldn't have brought the deal to us in the first place. What this firm does is they, is, is they use the red teaming technique of devil's advocacy and they, they ask, how can we lose money off of this investment? And they have a robust discussion as a team about the proposal and ask themselves what, what could happen that could make us lose a lot of money off of this deal. And once they've had that discussion, then they kind of weigh that and say, do we still feel good about this knowing that this could happen? And what are the things we should look at in the marketplace that would signal that this, that this might turn into a bad investment so that we know to get out if those things happen. And they have become much more successful than their peers using this system because it's a different type of approach that lets them, think about how things could go bad rather than just simply focusing on how things could go good. And, you know, one of the things that the, that the, that the, the senior partner who explained this to me said is that he said, you know, all of my people are smart. But again, this goes back to our individual bio, biases, and this is the same type of thing that happens to individuals when they make investment decisions. He said, we fall in love with the deal, though. Once we find a good deal, we start to think about how good it is. And the more we think about how good it is, the less likely we are to think about the potential risks. So red teaming helps us to have that discussion about the risks before we pull the trigger. It's like in social psychology, it sort of fits into the theory of cognitive dissonance. Once you've made a decision, you think of you 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 become aware of and think of all the reasons why this was a good decision, validating your decision to make you feel comfortable about your decision or about your choice. And absolutely, yeah. If you're deciding to buy one of the most, I was going to say one of the most powerful biases is is confirmation bias. 
which again has been demonstrably proven over and over again that once we believe something, we are much more receptive to information that confirms what we already believe than we are to information that challenges what we believe. And, you know, so this, this is, these are dangerous things. And again, it doesn't matter how smart we are. They've done tests, you know, psychologists have done tests with, with people with, you know, Einstein-like IQs that still suffer from all of these same biases and blind spots because it's just the way our brains are wired. You know, when well, you're, our emotional when you're IQ is the, different. Yeah, well, our emotional IQ is different than our intellectual IQ, which is what you're saying, I think. Um, so well, we can it's be part really. Of it, but it's also, you know, you know, when you're when you're out on the savanna, you don't really want to sit and look at a lion and say, "Hmm, does this lion really want to eat me, or is he just, you know, licking his chops because you know, his lips are dry?" And, and so we still have this kind of wiring in our brain to just make decisions based on past events and, 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 and kind of things like that that can be helpful in, in situations like that, but can be really harmful in situations like deciding whether or not to, to invest in subprime mortgages. Let's talk about politics, because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how do you put that in the context of Let's say our Congress, our Republican and Democratic Congress, and the way they traditionally make decisions or continue to make decisions, um, how does how would red teaming fit into that? Because I'm thinking about, you know, I had a, went out to dinner last night, had a, obviously a big discussion about a, Trump and administration, and you know what he's done or what he hasn't done, and I'm and uh, you know I. I really believe that I think that, uh, you know, we have a a branch of government, we have three branches, and Congress seems to me um, is in a position where they're not making good decisions, you know, based on some of the stuff that you've been saying. I'm a Republican, this is the way I have to make my choices, I'm a Democrat, this is, you know, this is the way I, this is what I believe, without uh, engaging in any awareness or... Um, any of the, actually any of the tools that you've been talking about. So can can you put that the red teaming maybe in the context of of our political uh, situation now? Well, you're absolutely right, Catherine. <laughs> I mean, we we we're desperately in need of it, uh, both in our political system and just as a country dealing with all the threats that we face globally and and the challenges we face at home. Unfortunately, I don't see a real desire to, to, to have uh, any sort of critical thinking or, or, or deep thought about, about any of these things in any branches of our government right now. Um, I think that people make very short-sighted decisions that are primarily based, and this is, this is I'm not, I, I, I say this in both parties, that, that people are making a lot of very short-sighted decisions that are based on their own political careers and not on not even really giving a thought to what the needs of the country or what's best for the nation. And, you know, that's very troubling. You know, another thing that's very troubling is, is you know, as, as you mentioned in the, in the introduction, red teaming was developed by both the Army and intelligence agencies. And, and the first kind of modern red team, if you will, in the, of the type I'm talking about, was the CIA's red cell, which was set up on September 12th. 2001, literally, as they were still pulling people from the from the wreckage of the Twin Towers, the CIA created the red cell to provide alternative analysis and critical thinking about the intelligence threats, the the threats we faced uh, from terrorism and things like that. Because the C- the director of the CIA at the time recognized that we had we had had this colossal failure of imagination that that let these 
attacks occur. So one of the things that the red cell was charged with doing was preparing a daily alternative analysis briefing for the president that was part of the, 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 the daily intelligence review. Um, that basically, you know, the daily intelligence review laid out the CIA's best assessment of the threats we were facing and, and how to deal with them. And then they included a sheet prepared by the red cell that laid out a contrarian point of view that argued that the opposite was true. And the point was not to try to say that the, the, the regular analysis was wrong, but it was just to give the president another perspective to consider before making a decision. And again, going across both parties, President Bush and President Obama both on the record said multiple times how valuable they found that alternative analysis memo. Unfortunately, the current president, one of his first things he did was ask that it be removed from his daily intelligence briefing because he didn't want to see it. That's frightening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't quite know how to respond to that. I mean, and and that's and then so that's gone. He that's not something that he refers to on a daily basis. They still prepare it for internal use, but it's no longer provided to the president at his request. So what okay, that's the president. Um, in terms of, well, I mean, and, and that's one example. Uh, I assume that there are other examples of um, uh, similar to that that are that, that the president doesn't access information or look at information before he makes choices. Or, well, you know, I mean, when red, you know, red teaming is 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 now spread well beyond the military and intelligence communities. Department of Homeland Security now has has really active red teaming. Department of of um, uh, Customs and Border Protection, you know, a lot of a lot of government agencies are using red teaming very effectively. I mean, I, I heard was told a story uh, when I was taking the the U.S. Army's red teaming course um, about uh, Customs and Border Protection had one of their most successful drug interdictions ever was was done by using red teaming. So so the way that they used it was. Um, there's a valley, I believe it was in Arizona, where, and I can't give too many details about this because some of this stuff is still classified, but um, there was a major drug route uh, into the United States for, for the, the, the Mexican cartels. And, and despite every kind of effort to kind of, you know, try to interdict narcotics on this route, time and time again, did our drug enforcement agency, agents were failing. They weren't doing it. And so they sent one of their team leaders to the U.S. Army's red teaming program a few years ago, and he learned how he learned you know about the tools and techniques that I described in my book. And when he went back to the field, he said, "Can I use what I learned from the Army? Can I use this red teaming system to to help plan our next operation?" And in doing so, he looked at the map and and what he said, you know, let's we've been assuming that the drugs are coming in through the valley here. Why have we been assuming that? And the response was because, well, on either side of the valley are very impassable mountain ranges. So, you know, obviously these guys aren't using those because they're very difficult to traverse. So he argued the opposite using the, you know, the kind of methodical red teaming approach. He made the case for the fact, well, what if they are using the mountain ranges? What if they're not using the valley? And he convinced uh, Customs and Border Protection to set up and the DEA to set up their 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 um, screens, if you will, of agents on two mountain trails that had been viewed as being way too difficult and treacherous for for drug traffickers to use. And guess what? That's where they caught them. 
What a story. I mean, that's a story. I mean, so in other words, if we use red teaming instead of building a wall, we might be more successful at... Um, we might, or we should at least red team the question of, of, of building the wall. You know, that's the problem is, is that we live in an era of, of incredible complexity. One of the, uh, the, the, mer- one of the Marine generals, uh, that I, that I worked with in writing this book, who's, who's one of the, the kind of most legendary red teamers in the world right now, uh, Lieutenant, uh, General Van Riper, he's retired, but he's, he's just a great, great critical thinker. And he just, he, he, what he said to me is, you know, he said, Bryce, the problems that we're dealing with in the world today, he didn't just mean the military, he just, he meant broadly speaking, he says, we're dealing with complex problems. And dealing with complex problems is like playing a game of chess in which all of the pieces are connected to each other with rubber bands. So that if you pull one piece, you move every other piece on the board. And that's, you know, that's, those are the types of issues that we're dealing with. You know, if you think about trade policy, it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's unfair, you know, the, the trade agreement we have with Mexico, we're going we're gonna to slap taxes on imports coming from Mexico. But there's a whole cascading array of things that would happen if we did that, that affect corn farmers in Iowa, that affect, you know, affect automakers in Detroit, that affect, you know, people, you know, uh, you know, working in, in Poughkeepsie, Illinois right now in, in, in some, you know, tire factory. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, everything is so interconnected that you can't make rash decisions. Now, you need to think more carefully about things. Now, that said, Catherine, I want to be clear. One of the things that the Army taught me was that, you know, red teaming can never be an excuse for inaction when, when action is required. There are times when you have to make quick decisions. One of the first lessons, the first lesson they taught us at Fort Leavenworth was don't red team when the enemy is in, in the wire. In other words, if, if your base is being overrun, don't sit and stop and say, let's red team this. But when you're making a big decision, when you're making an important decision that you don't have to make this second, Spending a few hours thinking more deeply about it, spending even a few days thinking more deeply about it, can, can save you from months and years and even a lifetime of, of regret and hurt. And that's the, that's the whole point of this, is when you're making big decisions, is to be more thoughtful. You know, the thing is, Catherine, I work with a lot of companies around the world. And, and as I've introduced Red Teaming to them, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of companies is that some of the things that you're teaching us are things that we know about theoretically, like that we should check the assumptions of our plans. But because we don't have a system to do it, it really becomes just checking a box. You know, I was talking with, with one company. They said, you know, we're supposed to, before we make an acquisition of another company, we're supposed to, we're supposed to. And Bryce, we have one minute left. So I want uh, okay. just, yeah. Yeah. So the point is, is that this is a system that makes you do these things rather than just, you know, making it something you just say you're doing. Well, there is a, what a conversation. I just want to make sure that, because it's, it's, it's so interesting and, and obviously so is your book, Red Teaming, How Your Business Can Conquer the Competition by Challenging Everything. Bryce Hoffman, buy it online, bookstores everywhere, Amazon. It's a really important book. Um, so, um, an easy, to buy, easy to get your hands on, right? Uh, what and the website because right. you have, uh, yeah. Let's just give yep. us the blog that, yeah. BryceHoffman.com, B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 